something that made me really happy was we've got all these little wombat burrows down the back. So I just went and checked on them and I saw two separate wombats. So that was lovely, just kind of hiding in their burrows. And every time I go back, there's evidence of the wombats and the wallabies and lyrebirds. There's definitely a few little survivors out there. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Casey Kirchhoff, an ecologist and PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales. She's also the founder of the Environment Recovery Project, which was launched after the catastrophic fire season over the Australian summer. I was so taken with Casey's story because she actually lost her own home in the fires, which was so devastating and widespread, they made headlines around the world. She and her husband were living on a property in the New South Wales Southern Highlands, in a town called Wingelow, where they got married just last year, loved going for walks in the forest, and spent as much time as they could growing their own food and flowers in their beautiful garden. In the days following the fires, when it was safe to return to the property, Casey started taking photos of the plants and animals she saw emerging from the charred landscape. It gave her hope to see these signs of life, from new shoots growing on trees to wombats nestled in their burrows, and it inspired her to turn it into a citizen science project for other people to contribute what they were seeing too. I was also surprised to hear that Casey started her career as a real estate agent, so we began by talking about that and what sparked her move to study science. Here's my chat with Casey Kirchhoff. So Casey, I'm very keen to talk about the work you're doing now, but you actually started out as a real estate agent and a self-described ski bum. So can you tell us a bit about your background and where you grew up? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I grew up on the south coast of New South Wales, a nice little kind of coastal town called Kaurong. And during school, I wasn't, you know, the best student. I wasn't a bad student, but my grades were never all that great. So going to university was something that I never really thought was on my horizon. So after finishing the HSC, I've been skiing for my whole life, really. And I thought maybe I could just go live down in the snowy mountains for a couple of years. So I did that and had just a fantastic time. And then after that, um, kind of following in my dad's footsteps a bit, he's uh, a property valuer and real estate agent down here on the South Coast. So I, I took a little foray into property management and then a bit more of the marketing side of real estate for about five years and then decided I would go to uni. <laughs> and did you enjoy working in real estate? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I, you know, I thought it was, it's a nice job to have, especially down here, you, um, you get to kind of meet a lot of people and also working in the Huskisson area, which is where I was based. And it's a, you know, it's just a beautiful place to be based. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. After a couple of years, I actually moved up to Wollongong and worked in a more of a commercial real estate agency environment there. But it's funny because you would think that maybe skills that you learn in that sort of work environment wouldn't be directly translatable into what I'm currently doing. But it's funny the amount of times where I've actually gone back to these skills that I gained, you know, during real estate, during my time in real estate and applied that to, you know, science. 
kind of funny. Okay. What kind of skills? Um, so especially when I was into more of the marketing side, I I was sent out to do a few little courses in some of the uh, Adobe products, so InDesign, Creative Suite, that sort of thing. And obviously now, you know, being a scientist, you need to make posters, or you don't need to, but you can choose to make posters to um, to kind of illustrate your research. So it's kind of, that was definitely a nice grounding to have there in terms of science communication. Um, that's really, really come in handy. So you said in, it was about in your mid-20s that you decided to go to uni and I think it was a Bachelor of Science that you studied. You mentioned that you thought you'd never go to uni, so what prompted that move and why science? Yeah, it's um, a bit of a funny story. I was still working in real estate at the time, um, met a lovely chap, as you do, at the pub, and he had just <laughs> moved out to Australia from Denmark to uh, undertake a PhD. I didn't even know what a PhD was at the time. You know, I didn't really experience that environment. And he realized after hanging out with me for a little while that I was actually like strangely interested in plants for, a, you know, someone who's maybe never gone to uni to study them professionally. So he, a little bit of prompting from him kind of got me thinking maybe, maybe it's something that I could do. So, yeah, I think it was not too much longer after meeting him, maybe a year or so, I'd uh, applied for actually landscape architecture um, at UNSW. So I, I didn't get into that, but I did get in on a Bachelor of Arts and that was fine by me. I started with environmental, like environmental history, environmental philosophy, these sorts of things. But I took a couple of science subjects um, in my first semester and realised that this was really cool and underneath all of you know (laughs) all of whatever I was doing at the time there was a little kind of plant nerd hidden in there so (laughs) I decided to split my degree into a double and yeah the rest is kind of history went down the science road. And you're actually now studying a PhD yourself which is pretty amazing it's no small undertaking so what are you researching and what does the life of a PhD student look like? So I'm coming towards the end of my candidature and I'm, I'm looking at how climate change is impacting Australia's alpine plants. So that would come under the broad umbrella of ecology. So I've been well, for the past three years now doing a, a combination of field experiments. So a lot of my time has been spent walking around in the beautiful snowy mountains, uh, looking at flowers, shoveling a lot of snow in winter. I was doing a winter field experiment. So that's just been absolutely fantastic. Also going into some of these plant libraries that we have around the world are called herbarium. So I've been going into there and looking at some old plants as well. And now I'm getting to the stage of needing to sit down and do a lot of writing, a lot of data analysis. Um, but, you know, it's it's been pretty good. Obviously, it's can be stressful at times, but I've so far really, really enjoyed my PhD adventure. And how long has it taken you? So um, I started in 2017. Um, I ended up taking a little bit of time off. Um, so towards the end of last year, and I'm, I'm just about to go back to my candidature after having all up about six months off. Um, so by the time I finish, I would have probably been at it for four years or so. And do you get any sort of income when you're doing a PhD or are you having to juggle a job as well? 
Yeah, so um, I, I'm lucky that I, I did get one of the government scholarships. Uh, I believe it's called the RTP scholarship. So that does pay, you know, it's, it's a pretty low wage, but at least you are getting some funding to do your research, which is fantastic. And then a lot of uh, a lot of PhD students, especially in ecology, um, and people that need to do field research can apply for grant funding. So I have received a lot of funding from, say, the Ecological Society of Australia and a few other, um, you know, smaller firms around Australia to do my research, which is really helpful because that pays for things like equipment, fuel, um, those sorts of things. And then there's also, oh, it's not an expectation, but it's a really good skill to learn as a graduate student how to engage with and teach um, younger people. So, well, not always younger people, but, you know, undergraduate students. So, there's usually the opportunity to do either lab demonstrating or, or lecturing as well. And we often hear about the gender gap when it comes to women in science. Do you come across many other women in your field? I find that ecology is quite well represented, definitely at the postgraduate level. As you go up the ladder, the disparity becomes more evident. Um, so you, it's it's less often that you'll have uh, you know women in the top roles. Um, a lot of the more the higher positions do tend to be occupied by men, but at the same time, you do see women in science filling those roles just less so. But yeah, I guess I guess it it is evident when you're looking at the number of female PhD students, um, and then kind of you know the drop off as you go through postdoc towards faculty positions. So yeah, there definitely is mm. a disparity. And what do you plan to do once your PhD is done? What kind of work do you plan to go into? I've been given it a bit of thought, I guess, <laughs> and it's something that I probably should start to think a bit more seriously about but you know I, I quite enjoy doing consultancy work I've done a bit of that um, over the past couple of years so I don't yeah I mean I, I quite like academia as well there's obviously parts of academia that are fantastic and parts that are you know a little bit less wonderful so yeah I, I'm not really set on a you know on a career path as of yet um, I know it's going to be something related to the environment general ecology, citizen science, something like that. But what direction that takes, I'm still not 100% sure. Then you and your partner have a beautiful five-acre property in Wingello in the New South Wales Southern Highlands. And I believe you guys actually got married there. Can you tell us a bit about the property and what attracted you to living in that area? Yeah, um, so it's... It's a beautiful property. It really is. Um, and a couple of years ago, we, we were living in the in the Illawarra area. Um, we we wanted to buy a spot, but we realised that, you know, we what we really wanted was a a bit of land, a bit of space. So we started looking outside of the Illawarra up to the Southern Highlands, and then Windjalo wasn't really even on my radar, to be honest. Um, you know the I was thinking maybe Bundanoon would be the furthest out that I would go, but this property just kind of popped up in one of those online real estate searches. And the more I looked at it, the more I was, you know, falling in love with this this property. So it's it's five acres and four of those acres are just beautiful, um, really nice, pristine bushland. 
it's a eucalypt woodland and then up where the house is or was um, it is also just really nice uh, shrubs and trees and stuff so it's just a very nice property the previous owners were just really nice environmentally minded people so yeah um, after you know chatting with the husband quite substantially about you know whether living rurally is something that we could do we decided to give it a go. And when did you say you guys moved out there? So we moved out uh, in July of 2017 and March 30th uh, last year we we had our little wedding out there so we just had a you know it's a smaller sort of ceremony of oh, I can't remember maybe 70 or 80 people um, down in a little Banksia grove in the woodland down the back of the uh, property in the, you know, in the woodland area. It was a really bitterly cold day, um, really cold westerly had come through. But just as we were starting the ceremony, the wind kind of dropped off. And um, just as we'd set our vows, this massive flock of yellowtailed black cockatoos flew overhead. There was probably like 30 or 40 birds and they were just flying over the top of us. And it was pretty, pretty specky. Oh, wow. And I've seen all the beautiful plants and flowers and food that you grow in your garden on your Instagram account. It all looked pretty idyllic, but I'm sure it was a lot of hard work as well. How many hours were you spending in your garden in an average week? Definitely every day. Um, Oh, if I, so I will mention a great thing about this little town is that there is a train line that goes to Sydney. So it's pretty much one of the furthest out train lines that you can get, but, you know, we were just there. So if I had to go to Sydney for the day, um, that's a six-hour round trip. So I I wouldn't obviously get in the garden on those days, but any day that I was working from home before breakfast, my lunch break, and usually in the afternoon, um, you know, after work finished, I'd be out in the garden. So hours and hours and hours um, planting the orchard, getting the vegetable garden ready and, you know, in good condition. Yeah, it's definitely a labour of love. Yeah. And what kind of things? Can you just give us a sense of some of the stuff that you were growing? Yeah. So I I really took a, a big dive into heirloom, just heirloom varieties in general, but heirloom tomatoes. So I've amassed quite a collection of seeds for tomatoes and so that's probably my favourite thing to grow. I love growing watermelons and rock melons and what else, pumpkins also. It's another really interesting thing I like to grow. Um, And then, you know, we we do get quite a cold frost up there in the highlands. We sit at about 650 metres above sea level. So, you know, we do get a hard, pretty hard frost, but we can still grow right through the winter. So, you know, that's the time where you get beautiful cabbages and all of those brassica type vegetables like cauliflowers and broccoli. So it's um, mm. quite, quite idyllic really. <laughs> And over the summer just gone, Australia experienced some of the most catastrophic bushfires we've ever seen. The scale of the fires was pretty unprecedented and I think it was around 3,000 homes that were lost. When did you first get news of the fact that the area that you lived in was under threat? So um, we were on high alert for what felt like a couple of weeks really. So There was the large Karawan fire burning further down on the south coast. And at some point in December, I think it was maybe mid-December, a fire had started in the Tianjara area, just north of the main Karawan fire. So when that one started, the southern villages of 
the Southern Highlands were kind of put on alert because that fire was moving northward through um, a large kind of un- undeveloped area of Edarama Gorge and whatnot. So there were, I was yeah, probably about two weeks that we were kind of at the ready to pack up and leave. But the really big warning came through on New Year's Eve uh, with really hot temperatures, really strong winds. Um, so we evacuated on that day and came down to the coast to my parents' house. And yeah, so, you know, the fire didn't get to Wingelo on New Year's Eve, but it did get there on the 4th. So a big, huge southerly wind um, pushed uh, the fire spotted over the Shoalhaven River up into uh, the forest just down the road from us, really. So it started, the fire started two doors down from our property. And I was actually watching on the the fires near me app. It was about 10 o'clock at night and I was refreshing, refreshing. And then I noticed a spot fire had been reported uh, basically two doors down from our house and kept refreshing, refreshing. I've got screenshots of it actually because it felt so surreal. And more and more spotting fires between Wingelow and Bundanoon and um and then, yeah, you know, by the morning, the whole area had just been covered in the burnt, you know, burnt fires near me up, um, symbol. So, yeah. And then the day after that, our neighbour who had evacuated to Mossvale um, gave us a call and, yeah, told us that we'd lost our house and, yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. That must have been absolutely devastating for you guys. Yeah. Um, and I mean, how long was it until you could go back to the property and, and what kind of scene did you return to? So we, we went to the property two days later. So, um, it was, it was unsafe to enter. Um, so we lived down a forested road and it was basically unsafe and, you know, the, the emergency services were working uh, to clear the roads and control the fires. So we just waited until we had the okay that we could come and have a look at the property. So two days later we did and, you know, there was things smoking everywhere stumps on fire and the smell because it's not obviously when it's a house that's burnt down it's not just bushfire smell it's everything that was in the house like plastics and all sorts of things that you really don't want to be breathing in um so yeah it's getting back there and seeing that for the first time was um yeah pretty brutal Mm. had you been able to take much with you had you had time to you know, pack up a few things? Yeah, so um, because we had left a couple of days earlier and it was just kind of like waiting for the inevitable really, but we did uh, pack up a trailer load of things. Um, you know, we took all of our chooks. I think we had about 12 chooks, <laughs> evacuated all of them. I had eight little quails. Uh, so all of those guys came with me. Um, my husband's also an, an academic. He got all of his books. Um, you know, philosophers are very much attached to their books. So, yeah, I mean, obviously there are a lot of things that we couldn't take, but we feel pretty lucky that we could get, like we had the opportunity to actually take some of our, you know, heirlooms and treasured possessions. And, yeah, I took my whole seed collection, which is pretty much the first thing I grabbed after all the animals. Actually, that kookaburra picture behind me that the listeners can't see, but yeah, that that's something we saved. It was a wedding present from some friends. So, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh well, you must be, I mean, it's a small silver lining, but you must be thankful, I guess, that you'd had that time to at least, you know, grab some of those things that meant a lot to you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I did see some of the quite incredible photos that you took. I, I think it was on that first trip back that showed that some of your garden, your prized beloved garden had survived. Um, how did that make you feel to see some of that? Yeah, it was it was totally surreal, actually. Um, I, and luckily, a, a large tree had fallen kind of diagonally um, in front of my little glass house and the garden. And I'm pretty sure that's actually what saved a lot of it because it formed a bit of a barrier. So yeah, it was just, you know, it, there was a lot of black and char and um, things like that. But there were, you know, big red pumpkins sitting in amongst all the charcoal and um, yeah, little flowers. There was a sunflower blooming. It was, yeah, it was pretty crazy to see that. And since then, seeing the things that have really bounced back. So I've been going up there occasionally and still harvesting watermelons and pumpkins and stuff because apparently these vines just refuse to die. So yeah, there's some tenacious wow. plants in that garden. Oh, that's so cool. And you started noticing other signs of plant and animal life in your area as well. What were some of the first things that you saw? Yeah, so obviously I, I wanted to go and check out the forest. Um, knowing that we'd lost the house, I wanted to see what the forest down the back looked like as well. And yeah, just a couple of days after the fire, um, we've, we've got quite a, a nice little bit of a swampy ground through some of the property and in that wet area, we were already getting some of the beautiful spike rushes um, popping up and which was great because as soon as they'd pop up, something like a wombat or a wallaby looked like it was coming in and eating it down to a little stub. So there was there was a little bit of food there for, for the animals, which was fantastic. Um, something that made me really happy was we've got all these little wombat burrows down the back. So I just went and checked on them and two of, I saw two separate wombats. So that was lovely, just kind of hiding in their burrows. And every time mm -hmm. I go back, there's evidence of the wombats and the wallabies and lyrebirds and yeah, so it's, you know, it's it's great. I mean, obviously not everything made it through. I've seen some really sad things as well, you know, little burnt skeletons and little animals that didn't make it. But, you know, there's definitely a few little survivors out there. Mm, yeah, that's such good news because I think that's the thing that got a lot of people, not just in Australia but around the world, was the amount of animals. I think it was over a billion is the number that they yeah. talk about, which is almost impossible to comprehend yeah. and I guess those early signs of renewed life spurred you to launch the environment recovery project and I think you launched it within days of of losing your own home which is quite phenomenal um can you tell us a bit about that and what you're hoping to achieve with it yeah so um it's definitely one of the positives that's come out of you know that absolutely horrific loss um it was really yeah it was a couple of days after after seeing those first little spikes of you know plant pushing through the soil I got in touch with one of my PhD supervisors who's pretty savvy with citizen science and iNaturalist and said hey I think you know I kind of want to do this at first I just really wanted to record what was coming back on my own property and then it struck me that I a lot of people are probably thinking of doing the same so, you know, thought maybe we could turn it into a bit of a project. And after some discussions and um, involving the Centre for Ecosystem Science that I'm a part of at UNSW, we decided to 
really turn it into something a bit bigger and have have a good launch. So a lot of people became aware of it. We got I'm not a fire ecologist personally, um, so we got some of the expert fire ecologists from the centre involved as well. And it's really turned into quite a good project. I mean, we've had nearly 5,000 observations right around the Australian firegrounds. Um, some people are really putting a lot of effort into it and it's just really fantastic to see. And it's also a project that doesn't really have an end date. So it's kind of there, you know, when bushfire season rolls around again in just a couple of months, you know, people will be reminded to go out and look at things that are still recovering from the last bushfire season. Mm. And what do you hope to learn from the data that you collect? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many questions that can be asked with it. We've We've started by kind of just having a look at, how accurate the the citizen science data is. So uh, we have a pre-print, pre-print paper out at the moment, which is um, going into review, looking at satellite imagery um, from across the fire grounds using something called hotspots. So basically looking at the temperature of the ground at a certain time and then how well that correlated or correlates with observations that citizen scientists are putting in. So we have a few little questions that they can answer. And one of those is looking at the burn severity. So how far up the tree trunks is the black scarring and, you know, how were the leaves 100% consumed or were they scorched, these sorts of things. And it turns out, you know, that citizen scientists are actually really accurate in the data that they're reporting. So, it's really useful to be able to have this really cool resource available so rapidly after after a massive event like this. It can be a bit tricky either in organisations or in government to get a really rapid response. So I think that's where citizen science can feel like a really, really crucial gap, um, mm. especially with these big disasters. And if there are some listeners who may not be familiar with the concept of citizen science, how do you explain it to people and how can people get involved? Yeah, so basically any person has the capacity to be a citizen scientist. You don't need to have gone to uni to get degrees or anything like that. You basically just go out and observe something, anything, um, and there's citizen science that relates to, you know, all sorts of things like air pollution or, you know, bushfire regrowth, which is what we're interested in. You know, you can snap a photo of a tree or a bird and upload it to some sort of platform like iNaturalist or Quest a Game. And then that is then contributing to, in our case, biodiversity research, but it can also cover things like public health so basically, if you have an interest of any sort, there's probably a citizen science project out there that you can participate in. And so our good website to look at would be iNaturalist, where yours is, or is yeah, that so a good I'm, starting point? iNaturalist is um, a global citizen science project that's more interested in biodiversity data, so plants, animals, fungi, um, these sorts of things, a more like homegrown one is there's BioCollect on the Atlas of Living Australia. So that actually aggregates a whole bunch of different projects that are going on. And then 
Another local one is Quester Game, and that uses a reward-based system um, for people to go out and actually submit observations. So, yeah, I mean, okay. there's yeah, there, there's really endless uh, possibilities when it comes to citizen science projects and the depth of detail that people go into with their their reports and their observations. It can be as simple as a photo, or it can be detailed questions. Mm. But I think even for a lay person such as myself, just seeing the photos that people have uploaded was very heartwarming because on your page on the iNaturalist site, I mean, there's so many beautiful, colourful photos of flowers in bloom and animals out and about. Like it's it's a very positive thing to look at. Yeah, it really is. And I feel that, I mean, it people seem to have really liked going out into the fire grounds and seeing the regrowth and seeing kind of the animals that were in the area and then contributing that to the project. I feel with the current state of things with the pandemic, um, there's been a bit of a drop off, but understandably because we've got social distancing measures. But yeah, I really hope when it's all over that people can go out and keep looking at the bush and see what's coming back because I think people it's like it's kind of healing um not just for the bush but for people to see that things are alive out there even though it's you know it was just so horrible and so widespread Mm. so what's been happening with the recovery in your area over these past few months and how much help have you received um in terms of yeah the citizen science uh, we've definitely still been getting a lot of observations coming in from property owners that had um, you know, a portion of their properties burnt in the fires and they're still able to walk around and, you know, submit observations from their backyard, basically. I've been going to my own property that was burnt and we've started a long-term monitoring project uh, just in that in that little bit of forest down the back and the adjoining recreation reserve. So, we're hoping to use this as kind of like ground zero baseline data um, and monitor, you know, for the foreseeable future to see what happens after after a fire like this in this area. And what about with your house and the rebuild? Have you received help for that? Yeah, so um, we, we're, you know, feel really, really, really lucky to have been supported by a few different charities. Um, you know, the, the Red Cross has, I know that there's still money to go out. A lot of people haven't received it yet, but we, we've we gotten, you know, really good funding from them in terms of getting us back on our feet. And that's come through in three separate, three separate amounts, which has been really great. You know, they're putting a little bit of money into people that want to rebuild on their burnt site, which is great. A little bit of funding from Salvation Army, um, St. Vincent de Paul, um, and then there was a there was a concert held a few months ago up in the Highlands called Fire Aid. We've just gotten a little bit of funding from them as well to use um, in some of the local local businesses. So yeah, it's been you know it's it's been really horrible, but we've been really nicely supported. And yeah, I feel like as as far as uh, bushfire victims go, we've definitely been pretty lucky in terms of having a place to stay, like we're we're living with my mum and dad at the moment um, until we can rebuild our property. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people really doing it tough out there. So I feel like Mm. 
we're definitely one of the good stories, like the, you know, the happy ending stories when it comes to this. But, you know, there's a lot of people that are still living in a tent or a caravan and they really, they're the ones that really need some help right now. Mm. Well, yeah, and it's pretty crazy to think, you know, we went straight into a global pandemic off the back of it. I mean, um, you know, it was very heartwarming to see how much support there was for bushfire survivors. But, you know, I guess the recovery process has been held back quite a lot by now dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Mm. And you mentioned you're about to go back to your PhD. So what do this, the rest of 2020 look like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a bit of a funny old year, actually. I'm going to go back to my PhD for uh, a couple of months and do as much as I can. But in October, we've got a bub coming. So first baby and yeah, yeah, so I'll I'll do as much as I can. And it's been, it's been strange kind of getting, getting the big project, the citizen science project up and running while kind of battling, having to be on the couch with morning sickness, but wanting to kind of (laughs) persevere through. (laughs) But yeah, it's. Um, I think it's for for us, like as a family, it's really exciting to have that little positive that's going to kind of come out of this year because 2020 hasn't exactly been the top of everyone's list in terms of great years so far. So yeah. We're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've certainly made some brave leaps in your life and career Um, and in particular you face such a devastating loss, not just with courage but with optimism and hope. What would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? It's funny. I think think making the leap from, um, you know, a secure secure employment situation with decent pay, um, going, going to being a full-time student. So making the choice to actually leave my job and go to school, like go to university, I feel like that, yeah, that, that was definitely a leap and definitely well out of my comfort zone. Um, I'm so glad I did it, but yeah, it, it was definitely, um, it took some adjusting, but I'm really stoked that I made that choice Mm. all all those years ago now. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you, how did you put aside any doubts or fears to make that step? I think I kind I've kind of always wondered if I had the potential um, and, you know, I felt like maybe I I did want something more. I I had questions that were unanswered basically. So, yeah, that was – and obviously having um, met a a guy who was in the academic kind of sphere, he was all for me, giving it a crack. So, yeah, I mean I had contrasting, you know, opinions coming in from friends and family. No, you should keep your job. Yes, you should go to university. So, you know, it was just kind of balancing all of that and then being happy with the decision I made myself. And I think often courage comes from seeing the actions of other women, maybe women in our own field or out there in the wider world or even in our own families and communities. Um, Who are some of the women who you look to and who inspire you? I've definitely got a couple. Um, I mean, I've got got some 
science science heroes that you know as as a young female ecologist I think people like Jane Goodall are hard to go past she's just been such a leader um leader in the movement for so long Sylvia Earle um I'm also really interested in the marine side too just uh, as an amateur but Sylvia Earle has done so much as well for really raising women's voices in science um and then when it comes to my life trying to live sustainably um (laughs) there's there's just a, you know, there's a couple of YouTubers out there, funnily enough. Um, there's a gardener from Arkansas who I find just really wholesome and inspiring. So I like to kind of grab onto people like that and, you know, hold them up high. People that are just kind of trying to live with a small footprint. And I mean, these are all ideals that I love as a as a bit of a homesteader. So, yeah, if anyone uh, is interested in that way of life, that's our Roots and Refuge Farm on YouTube. Her name's Jess. She's a doll. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, and you share a lot of sustainable tips on your own accounts as well. So we'll include the links to them in our show notes. Um, and for any listeners out there who might be facing a big change or potentially a big loss themselves in their own lives right now, any final tips for them? Yeah, I mean, obviously it, it can be really hard to look on the bright side, um, whether you've just had a house burned down in the bushfires or you may have some sickness or a really hard decision to make. I think um if you can make a list and at least get one or two good points on there that you can focus on, I mean, that's always a good starting point. I, I find that I, I am a bit of a glass half full type. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, taking a bit of an optimistic approach can can help you get out of some sticky situations, I find. Yeah, for sure. Well, lovely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Casey. It's been lovely talking with you. Yeah, thanks, Jackie. It's actually It's been really lovely, actually. That was ecologist Casey Kirchhoff, founder of the Environment Recovery Project, which you can find at inaturalist.org. You can also follow her on Instagram at hello underscore little springs, and we'll include the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening.